Christ Awakened Podcast, a no-nonsense approach to spirituality with your hosts, Brittany Hartley and Bill Reed. Here we dive deep into the wisdom traditions while acknowledging insightful breakthroughs in science, psychology, and human development. Our goal is to explore the good life and the very best of spirituality, no-nonsense required. Check us out at almostawaken.org where you can check out past episodes, make a donation, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources we shared. And now, today's podcast episode. Hey, how are you? Hi, everybody. Hello. How are you, Bill? Life is good. I mean, I tend to, I tend to, things tend to be okay in my world most of the time. So I feel bad for people who have, have harder times. There are moments like, there's moments we're all dealing with stuff, but generally speaking, really good. Hmm. For those of you who are concerned about me from last week, I did <laughs> bake a meatloaf good. from good my opioid you. constipation, so I'm doing much better. Thank you. I got a few messages checking in on my movements. <laughs> and uh, for anyone who's been through that, man, that was, that was not fun last week, but I'm doing much better coming from knee surgery here. We we had a, you know it's just a brief moment of the show, but that was that was funny that you brought that up and some of the things you said around it was good. Let's just yeah, let's just keep it real, you know. Humans poop. You gotta poop. You got to. It you is, have to. You, you you'll die if have you don't. To. Yeah. Anyway, all right. So we have the famous Jana Spangler with us today, and this was this episode was actually Jana's idea. She was talking to us off air on one of our last episodes about studs and said you know if you guys do something on this i want in and so we said yes <laughs> so we're going to be instead of reviewing a book or something like that we're just going to be reviewing this movie on netflix called studs and talking about these tools that this what would you psychiatrist psychologist what would mm -hmm. you say yeah uh, um yeah. yeah uses that jonah hill found especially compelling and just kind of riff on on these tools all right. So the first thing I just kind of had to to talk about here was his his difference to old psychology, which I don't know if Jana, maybe you have some more experience with like knowing kind of the shift in the psychology world on this. Mm -hmm. But old psychology was really this place where you are just a blank chalk, like you are just totally neutral. You are not responsible for your patient. You don't really connect with them. And you essentially just kind of are a platform for them to work out their own thoughts and ideas. And so it's like dehumanizing that process, right? Mm -hmm. And so Phil Stutz comes in and he says, you know what? That's just, we're not robots. Like, And when someone comes in for depression and then they talk to you for an hour and then they leave, they're not really getting a lot out of that. Mm -hmm. And so he has this much more kind of, human connection approach that I think is getting more and more popular, even if it's coming from like a life coach or a spiritual recovery coach like you are, Jana, or a spiritual direction, uh, because it's just not good enough, this blank wall, talk it out kind of psychology. Anyway, thoughts on that? Yeah, so I, I work with a bunch of therapists. You know, I work with Symmetry Solutions, and I'm the the 
currently the lone coach among all the therapists. So I would not say I'm an expert in this at all, but I do hear the discussions that therapists have with one another about self-disclosure, about relationship, um, you know, trying to avoid dual relationship. Um, and yeah, there's, it, it, it does seem to me that among the people that I know, there is, um, there's a wide variety of um, opinions about this, you know, even people who kind of like what he's doing, what Stutz is doing and like that idea um, also have a lot of hesitation because of, they feel like that old psychology approach is tried and true and there are, you know, real reasons for it. Um, you don't want to lay your your experience over another human being and all kinds of things that I think are legitimate that need to be paid attention to. Um, but there are also some things that I think are benefits to being in more of a relationship with the people that you work with and having some level of self-disclosure or, um, you know, one, one that Jonah mentioned in the movie was that he was just so, it's so helpful for him to know that this man who he really looks up to and has been so helpful in his life is a real person and still struggles himself. And um, just, you know, that helps, that helps even enter the tools that Stutz is doing. It's, it's kind of this, this meta approach where he's, he's showing his patients how to be vulnerable with, you know, and how to gain, gain radical acceptance and kind of do some of the tools that he's giving him in just modeling it. So um, I've noticed that. I think that um, people have to be really careful about when they just self-disclose, make sure that it's, you're not making it all about you and that there's an actually a purpose to it. But I do see valid purpose to it at times. So Jana, say more. What, what do you mean by self-disclose? Like mm. speak on that for a moment. Yeah. So self-disclosure in a session with somebody is like, you know, they're, it, it's sharing details about your life and your struggles or your anything personal about you as it relates to what they are going through. Right. And um, a lot of therapists and a lot of therapy schools are very much against self-disclosure. Um, but meaning the I, therapist is sharing their life with correct. the client. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Something about themselves, something about their life, their thoughts, their, you know, whatever that is. Um, and so, yeah, there's, but there is a growing debate and it's true, Britt, like there, it's a, it's a, it's a growing feeling among some therapists that there are benefits to, um, to being able to say something about yourself. And I, and in my coaching, I don't have such strict ideas, although um, I'm really mindful about this, you know, and I do listen to the therapists and I listen to the upsides and downsides and I try to be wise. Um, and I have my own ethics, ethical, you know, that I, coaching ethics that I follow. Um, but I personally find that, um, that self-disclosure at times with certain people can be very helpful. Um, partially because it's so hard for people to see things. It's hard for all of us to see things about our own life and about our own situation, right? Like I can be talking to a client about some tools that I like to use and it's hard for me to do them in my own marriage, in my own life, 
right? So sometimes disclosing how we all struggle can be a really helpful thing. Or to give an, an, um, an example of something that is not just this theoretical, let's stay in the theoretical realm or only in your situation. Let me give you an idea of how this can look in somebody's life. And sometimes those examples, I, I've had a very poignant one myself, you know, so um, I have chosen to kind of try to walk that line and um, use my gut and, and do it when I feel like it is, it is appropriate. Yeah, for me, um, in doing spiritual direction, I feel like where I self-disclose the most is when I'm asking you to meet me in this place of a lot of vulnerability. And I'm going to take that first step out and just invite you as much as you want to come. Because if, if we're talking about your shadow self, if you're a mother and you're struggling with thoughts, and those are scary to say out loud to another human, right? We don't have the trust yet. And so for me, it's there's a lot of um, sacred trust that comes from me saying, these are some of the thoughts that came into my mind when my kids were little, or this is what my shadow self looks like, or this is what my ego says to me, or this is what it felt like for me when I had a complete faith deconstruction. How does it feel for you? And so having that being able to kind of meet in a place of vulnerability tends to be better than like, tell me your deepest, darkest thoughts and tell me your deepest, darkest struggles. Right. That's, Absolutely. that's really hard to get off the ground without a human connection of safety. Yeah, absolutely. I, I do the same. Yeah. Yeah. And then just to note, I just looked up Phil Stutz, uh, mm -hmm. MD, uh, medical degree, uh, prison psychiatrist on Rikers Island, and then he moved his private practice to New York. So a psychiatrist looks like he uh, moved his practice to Los Angeles in 1982, but he's been doing this obviously a long, long time, but psychiatrist. Um, uh, the idea of using your own life to help other people make connections is a tool that I am using constantly probably most prevalently just in hanging out with my friends and when we're talking about life and when I sense a connection to something going on, but as you guys pointed out, you don't, you don't see it in your own life. And so I use that kind of self-disclosure, not to, not to sh like one up the story or to share another story, but to share kind of a, an insight without sounding arrogant in the room and trying to kind of blend life experience. And, and then also too, it's been super helpful to me. You guys, talking about the same sort of thing. My wife and I, one of our favorite TV shows to watch is this reality show called Marriage at First Sight. And you take these eight strangers, you know, four men, four women, and essentially the experts have gone like, this is the perfect person for you. And here you go. And two months later from now, we'll see if you guys want to stay married or get divorced. And as we're watching the show, there's so much good moments and so much dysfunction. But it's only when I see the dysfunction in another story do I do I like own it and go like, oh, whoa, that's me. I can I because if someone goes like, hey, Bill, you're being an ass right now. I don't I don't have an easy time with that. But if I see someone being an ass and I go like, oh, that's the thing I do, it becomes so much easier to make that connection and to fix things. Yep. So if you guys ever want to call me, like tell me that I'm an ass, just show me someone else doing what I do. <laughs> Note to self. <laughs> yeah. But I do think it is helpful. And I think psychology, therapy, psychiatry, there may be a real big benefit 
and opening up space for that. I think so. And I know there's been a lot of controversy over this this piece of this, you know, if you look online about what other psychologists are saying about studs, right? This is the big, this is the big question. And also the dual relationship of being a subject of a movie um, while also still being in active therapy with Jonah, right? So that's the other big question because then, you know, I mean, we, we actually saw it at one point in the movie when Jonah says, I've been lying to you in therapy. And he was lying to him because it was in the interest of the film. And so those are the problems that dual relationships bring up as well. And that's, that's another big one in the, the world of therapy. So do you have rules? I, this, I'm just curious, Jana. So do you have rules for uh, which kinds of friends you'll see and which ones you won't? Yeah, I mean, I have to think about this a lot, right? Because I do not have a license being hanging over my head mm. to tell me what what I can and cannot do. Yeah. So how do you navigate that? I'm curious. Yeah, I mean, I I'm kind of I'm a gut person, you know. Yeah. I always uh -huh. go back to I'm a one on the enneagram, right? So, but I I I don't just go with what feels right at the moment. But I I'll have a discussion with somebody about it, you know, like what's what's the upside, what's the downside here. And just make sure that everybody's consenting. But I, I have seen people who I have known in my life in other ways, whether they're just because of proximity, um, you know, I know them from other places in my life, or you know, I, I don't know that I would go into a deep coaching relationship with a friend, you know, with someone who's really close to me. But um, I have entered into some coaching relationships with people who are more at that periphery, and it can be problematic. 100% it can be problematic. And I, I, I do recognize that and use my judgment of how, what other access does this person have? Um, what benefit are they going to have from just at least knowing someone that they trust? You know, especially when we're talking about faith things, it, it can be complicated to find someone that you feel um, is open enough to your journey and knows enough about this stuff, you know? So I, I don't know. It's a tight walk. It's a tight rope for me. It's a tight um, rope. Yeah. And, and I, but ask I, a, I try to be mindful. How about you? Yeah. Um, yeah. K kind of the same people on my periphery, I'll say yes. And then people in my really, really close proximity, I'll say, let's just go to lunch. You know, like I don't want to, yeah, let's just go to lunch. Um, but I ask because I know it's a thing here in Boise where we, you know, we have a post-Mormon group here in Boise and the therapists do not attend that group. We have multiple therapists in Boise who work with really every, you know, have, have worked with everyone in the group essentially. And, uh, you know, are really on the ground doing the, the, the therapy work in Boise and they don't attend any of the social events because they know what you do in your sex life. And they know, you know, they just know everything about you and they just don't feel that it's appropriate to be there socially. And so I, I, I feel bad like you, I don't have um, the same kind of therapy ethical guidelines hanging over me, but I feel terrible that um, the therapist kind of had to make their own community for each other because it was too tricky to navigate social relationships with people that they were seeing as clients. 100%. I mean, and, and it's partic particularly problematic for therapists who work in small communities. Mm. You know? um, and it, I don't think that even the therapists who work in small communities can't fully avoid it. Because right. also different different kinds of ethics come up against each other, right? 
you know? Um, yeah, they can't fully they be find. themselves because mm -hmm. that's, you know, they're a therapist to someone else. So tricky. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I can see all the tension kind of pulling mm -hmm. uh, with this documentary. Absolutely. All right. So and I've seen move. reviews on yeah. both sides, right? I've seen yeah. re mm -hmm. reviews saying, yeah, we need to honor the old therapy, but yay. And other ones going, this is absolutely inappropriate and should never happen. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's dive into some of the um, tools that he talks about. We'll just kind of riff on some of the tools that he really highlights in, in the show. And so the first one, which I thought was interesting that he went into was um, activating your life force which I think is a really interesting way to start, particularly because if you're coming to therapy or you're coming to a spiritual director or a life coach, you know, you're not, you're not doing great. You need, you're in a place where you need some help. And so he's talking about activating your life force. And that's the only thing that's capable of guiding you when you are lost. And so he talks about three levels to the life force pyramid. And he starts with your body, which he says is 85% of this pyramid which is diet, exercise, and sleep in order to kind of start this journey. And I was like, I, I was, I completely resonated with Jonah when this was being discussed because like Jonah, when I was a kid, exercise and diet was framed to me like, this is how you need to look, right? And so I've always had like a big rebellion with the exercise diet industry because I'm thinking I'm going to die. I'm going to be worm food soon. I don't care. I, I don't want to care. And so I have always had this rebellion with, with physical health because of how it was portrayed to me, especially as a woman. Right. And, and then, so I really resonated with what Jonah said, which was someone coming in and talking about, it's not about that. It's just about your brain health so that you can do this, right? So you can make this journey. And that was the physical health kind of shift for me was that it wasn't about how I looked. It was about, oh, my brain works better. Oh, my daily experience of being a human is better. Okay, I'll maybe eat a vegetable, fine, whatever. <laughs> but I really resonated with that. Thoughts on level one. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I love, I love that he presences that at the very first. You know, if you read the body keeps the score or some of those that talk even about you know the neuroscience behind this and the trauma, um, it 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 presences how important that is. And there's a fundamental dilemma here, which is that people who are depressed, um, it's the last thing they want to do is actually care for themselves, right? So in a way, it's a bit of a catch twenty two. And I would be really interested in whether that shift of understanding it as a life force is enough for people to start to engage. Um, because I do think it's something that feeds on itself. Like, I think there's a lot of resistance, whether it's the body issues or um, just being allergic to having a checklist and having to get it done and so much pressure on people that, you know, that is the way to be in, in life. And if you've got ADD, if you've got other things that make that hard, it could be something you're already beating yourself up over. And so um, I think I'm guessing he has to be very delicate about how he goes about this. And I think I would, I would have to be very delicate. My thought about it is if I'm working with someone, it would have to be very delicate because I think these things are really good um, if they come from a self-care kind of a place. And I think it's easier people, for people to access it 
Um, I think it builds your self-love and I think that it, um, it, when it comes from that place, uh, people are more successful at it than, okay, this is what I need you to do. I'm going to give you an assignment, my first, um, session with you. And you know, you have, you, you need to be doing these things. I would imagine a high percent, that would, that would, that would fail a high percentage of the time. So I love it. And I'm, I also have lots of questions about how he actually does that on the ground. Yeah. And, and only probably to note, um, just over the last couple of days, I was uh, just a little bit, not my normal self. And we had, my wife and I've got, um, memberships at the local rec center and we usually go out three times a week and we'll walk a couple miles, speed walk a couple miles, get the heart up a little bit, heartbeat up a little bit. And, uh, lift weights for a moment. Um, and last week we didn't do anything. We just had a crazy week and didn't get to it. And all of a sudden I just had a couple of days where I was feeling off. And so last night we went back to the rec center and started, you know, the routine all over again and got a good night's sleep last night. And it, those things are real. They really do uh, affect us. And uh, it, it, I, I worry about the idea you guys are hitting on at the beginning of this, that hitting on the, or, I worry about the idea that we worry about what we're going to look like. Like I want to have a good looking body and I want to have, you know, Britt, you, you mentioned this kind of thing. Like this is the way you're supposed to look because we know inside our heads when we does, when we try to make our life special by being good at something or being popular, you end up being more sad and depressed because you never really achieve, even when you achieve it, it didn't fill the bucket and it feels as though getting the body in shape could easily be misunderstood as trying to be good looking or be, be appealing to the eye when I think he hits it dead on, which is, it really is about your physical well being, like that you feel good about your health, that you, that you have the ability to function fully. You've got a good night's rest that your body's serving you well. Yeah. I like how he, I, I think I would have, done a lot more for my body, especially during higher times. I think during the hardest times of my life, like Jana said, I wasn't doing anything for my body, nothing. Right. And I think if someone had phrased it, if someone had come to me and phrased it as here's some tools that are going to really help you get out of this dark place, but to give your brain its best shot, can we care for you a little bit better? I think I would have been more receptive to seeing that. But if I'm going through an existential crisis and you're telling me to eat, you know, five vegetables a day, I don't give a shit. I'm losing the concept of self. I don't care. Right. So it's got to be phrased the right way or just, mm -hmm. you know, we're not, we're not going to do it. Exactly. All right. Bill, do you have anything? Okay. Level two, uh, people. So this is, involves your relationship with other people. When people get depressed, it's not that they end their relationships. They start to get pulled back away from their life. And so Dr. Stutz refers to relationships as handholds to let yourself get pulled back into life. So if you start feeling depressed or gloomy, start with that level one stuff. Give yourself your best shot and then take the initiative and invite someone to coffee, even if you don't want to, even if you don't know, you know, don't particularly like them because other people are your connection to humanity and you have to keep that handhold or you're going to totally spiral off into oblivion. So thoughts on level two. 
Yeah, it's what I like about all of these is he's giving people an anchor, right? And I and I love that he uses very concrete metaphors for this. You know, in the movie, it actually shows someone grabbing onto, you know, the handholds um, as if they're climbing a ladder. And um, it's, I, I think it is really important. And I, I do find it interesting that he framed it as it doesn't matter who it is because that person represents humanity. It re- represents the human race. And really, you know, a lot of a lot of what I like about Stutz is when he's giving these tools, he is giving a different framework that, you know, it's not about um, it's it's virtuous to be with other people versus not, or it's not, you know, it's it's really very practical and um, I think does help give people a reason for doing some of these things beyond just I've been told I should do it. And, and by the way, here's another tool, another hammer to beat myself up with, you know, he, he, he has a nice way about presenting yeah. those things. And in, in kind of our, our line of work um, or in our field, all three of us, the place where people get stuck is that if you have no one who is willing to sit with you and just, have coffee with you about what you're dealing with and there you're stuck in that gap between where you are and the new friends that are coming, but are not yet there. Um, you can get, you can get really stuck there. Yeah. And if you think about it as I'm having a connection to humanity, it guides the conversation in a different way rather than I just need to tell you all my troubles, you know, mm. and I, I need to get this off my chest or I need somebody who will listen to me or we, you know, having it be framed around, you're not trying to find that safe person or you're not, try- you know, mm-hmm. you're just trying to have a connection with humanity. Like if I have mm-hmm. that in my brain and I show up with somebody, it's going to be a different conversation. Right. And we both, yeah. But when you're going through that faith transition, it's like, you do feel that I have to talk to somebody about this or I'm going to die. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think that is important and yeah. it would be good to yeah. find those people. Yes. All right. Billy had some. Just that there are lots of, species of animals on this planet who live a solitary life you know i'm thinking of snakes for instance they tend to kind of just do their own thing and if they bump into another snake it's not like they stop to figure out you know to to get to know each other they just move on their way but humans it's it is crucial humans are social creatures our 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 evolutionary ability to survive has been based on being connected to other humans and working as almost almost like you're working together like one life force right and and so you see it's in our dna and it it makes perfect sense to me that if humans are left to be alone and and sometimes we choose that and sometimes like you take the movie castaway right there's a, a really good example again fiction but a really good example of when you put somebody alone for a long period of time they begin to lose some degree of their sanity. And we know numerous cases throughout human history where such things have happened. We humans have got to be in connection with other humans. And we go like, oh, like, you know, maybe a week is no big deal. Well, maybe it isn't. But if two years on an island is horrific for the mental psyche, then maybe we ought to recognize along that spectrum that even just a little bit of time away from being connected with other humans probably has some ramifications, even if imperceivable to the conscious mind i saw this um it was like twitter or something where 
where Tom Hanks posted that he was, oh, we were celebrating 35 years being married or something like that. And the Wilson ball was like, wow, you're just going <laughs> to, those three years we spent together, you're just going to skip yeah. over that. Doesn't mean anything, does funny. it? Doesn't mean anything. I was there for uh, you. Anyway. All right. So the last level for activating your life force, specifically when you're, you know, going into therapy because you were in a, a dark place, depression, that kind of thing. Um, is yourself and this level, I was really curious about what he was going to say for this because I knew it was coming, but I didn't know what his approach was going to be. And so he said, this is all about befriending your unconscious mind. Do this by writing and journaling, write about whatever things will come out. Writing is like a mirror. It reflects what's going on in your unconscious. So if you're lost, don't try to figure it out. Let it go and work on your life force first. When you start becoming passionate about your life force, everything else will fall into place. So what do you think about that um, level three? Really, when it's time to connect with yourself, you really need to start connecting with what's going on in your subconscious. What do you think about that approach? Well, I mean, this is like the whole basis of inner work, right? And I do think it's essential to, to figuring out any kind of discernment of what we're doing in our life, why we're doing it, what's, you know, what's coming up in our relationships, what's coming up in my, my spiritual journey, what's coming up in everything else. Like you can't do that work without the, the inner, the inner work. Um, and so for me, it's, it's interesting to hear him put that pyramid together with, you know, without that being stacked on the, the body and other people. Um, because you know, I, I can see a world where we can do that without it, but I can also see how those things could be really supportive of it. Um, and I love that he gives these concrete ways of doing it and journaling is a wonderful way. And there are lots of other ways too. So, um, but yeah, I, I can see this life force, this idea of life force, giving people an anchor at a time when things can be really feeling, um, you know, feeling detached and feeling like you're just floating and not knowing you know, when we're, when we're, when we're trying to discover what is unknown, it's, it is, it is really good to start to have an anchor of knowing what I can trust. Yeah. I think for me, like you said, I don't know if it always happens, you know, in a row like that for people, mm -hmm. because I do think for me, um, when I was at the depths of kind of faith deconstruction or really like existential crisis. I think it was the other way around. I think mm -hmm. it was, you know, what is where, you know, working with your subconscious is really about saying the truths that you haven't said out loud yet, which for me is like theology school isn't working for me. Uh, I need to have some tough discussions in my marriage. I, you know, need to find something. I, I'm not passionate about this, but I, I seem to be really passionate about secular spirituality. And then I started to find people and friends in that line of work where I reached out to Bill Real, who, you know, we were periphery friends and now we're besties, you know, but that, th that level three piece happened first for me. And then, okay, I want my brain to be top notch. So maybe I'll take care of myself a little bit better. So, so yeah, I don't think it always happens in a one, two, three order, like you were saying. Yep. And I can also see how it's very supportive though. Yeah. You know? mm -hmm. Yeah. But then that's kind of what the rest of his thing is. It's all about that self-exploration. Most of his other tools deal directly with that. I'll probably say here what maybe we don't want or, or not expecting anyway, but 
it seems to me as though life is always precarious. And uh, if we get, if we sit and think about it, like there's a lot of stuff that could go wrong. Now I'll preface that by saying most of the time things seem to go right. But I think it's really easy for us to get inside our heads and to start to worry or feel paranoia or to have anxiety because so many things about our life could fall apart. And it, and they all go back to these three things, right? Like my body, which is my health, the people around me, so my relationships and interconnectedness, and then just me. And uh, part of, I think, this life, in order to enjoy it, you have to sort of distract yourself from the fact that there are, there are scary things right around the corner and sooner or later, some of them are going to happen. And so I think part of being happy on a regular basis is sort of fooling yourself into being occupied by other things going on. And what Phil seems to be pointing somebody to is that Here's how you can, in in some ways, create the distraction. Now, there's a whole lot of other stuff going on too, and there are, these are tools, and they're affecting people on a, on a whole nother level. But at least in part, when you're exercising and eating right, when you are going out to coffee with it doesn't matter who, when you are in tune, sort of, on some degree with your in your inner uh, thoughts, and whether that be meditation or whatever practice it is it seems like what you're doing is filling your life with the distraction that takes you away from this is all going to come to an end. And some of it's going to be really horrible somewhere along the way. Yeah, I would, I would frame that. I think that's really true. I would also frame that, that it doesn't necessarily need to distract, but it needs to resource you because I, you know, Stutz says, that, that he talks about the three unavoidable aspects of reality, right? Which sounds very Buddhist, actually. <laughs> you know, that there's pain, uncertainty, and constant work. And, um, you know, the pain and uncertainty came easily to me. The constant work, it took me a minute to get my brain around what he was saying there, but I can see, I can see what he's saying. These things are unavoidable. This is part of just who we are. And so it can be a distraction. It can also be a resource so that we can look at those things more closely so we can actually lean in because if we lean it's hard to lean into the reality of what our life is and those existential fears or just the painful experiences that happen through our life but actually when we are resourced through it it helps us rather than avoid it actually helps us lean into them yeah and i've i've heard you say things like that, Bill, where like, if you're just aware that either you're going to die or everyone around you is going to die. And if we just kind of accept the reality of that, then it does maybe like you're saying, Jana, maybe direct us into, okay, well, I'm alive right now. So what should I do right now? You know, to really soak in this aliveness um, while we can, because we're being honest about that this journey doesn't last forever. Okay, so the next part, this one was really interesting for me. I had never heard of this. I don't know if you had, Jenna, but um, 
I've never heard of this part X and the difference between part X and shadow. I, I put kind of all of this under shadow and he's differentiating out shadow, which is really interesting. And the three of us have talked about shadow work before. Jana talks about it nonstop. <laughs> <laughs> She's great at it. Um, so part X, so how he differentiates it, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, is that part X is that kind of voice inside your head that believes that things are impossible. It tells you to give up and you can't ever get rid of part X. You can only kind of defeat it temporarily. It always comes back. And so the part X is your doubts and deepest fears. And the shadow is kind of the byproduct of believing whatever part X tells you. So if my part X is deep, deep insecurity that I don't deserve to be here, then my shadow would be the actions that believe that. It would be the part of me that, I don't know, spends 10 hours on TikTok to get as many likes as possible so that I feel validated. So like that would be the shadow action working, but it's because it's listening to part X, which is your doubts and insecurities and fears, that voice in your head that never will go away, but you have to kind of work with. Thoughts on that? This one's a big one, right? Um, I think that so many different streams from psychology to wisdom tradition have tried to, to understand this mechanism that goes on inside us, right? And um, I think there's no one right model of exactly what is happening here. You know, at some point, he it, later in the film, Stutz actually equates this with evil, with Satan, this part X. And I think that's where a lot of religions have gone with this, right? Um, but I also think that if you look at neuroscience and you look at trauma that we hold in the body, if you look at um, IFS therapy, um, that is internal family systems that talks about the different kinds of protectors that crop up in your life when you face difficult things and then become that like inner critic that it's a part of you it's a part of your personality right young, young kind of talked about some of this as well but um you know there are different ways of explaining what this is but whatever way you choose the thing that i bristled at when he's explaining all of this is that there's this piece of me that's working against me and it just you know and i'm in the fight and i need to you know put on you know jonah talked about it, you're you're the hero in your own own life and for for some and i can see i actually can see some benefit to the psyche in in framing it that way we it, there is something that seems to be good in life about facing a challenge and getting through it and fighting for it and depending on who you are that may be a good thing for other people Defining any part of our inner world as the enemy is detrimental. So another way to, to talk about part X is the hurts that we have experienced and the parts that have grown up around us to protect us. And that that inner critic, I've actually experienced a lot of success with some clients having, framing that inner critic as a part of you that loves you. That's trying that to protect has, you. That is trying to protect you. Right. That mm -hmm. that is doing so. That wants something good for you. And I think something good happens to the psyche when we frame it that way. So, I think it just it depends on who you are. But it is an interesting framing that I haven't heard either before, said in quite this way. Although I hear echoes of it in mm. in other places in psychology and and, and religious thought. 
Yeah, it reminds me of Joe Rogan says uh, something like, you know, his little bitch voice of like, you can't do that or don't do that or whatever. And he says, you know, he loves his little bitch voice because then he gets up in the morning and he takes a cold plunge shower and then he works out for three hours and he just beats up that little bee voice, right? And it seems to help a lot of people, you know? Absolutely. But maybe if you're a personality that has been very compartmentalized or, you know, you've been your own enemy for a while, maybe you're coming from religion and so you're always trying to figure out, is this my voice or Satan's voice? Maybe that approach of like fighting your little bitch voice <laughs> is not the best approach to wholeness. Yes. I, like Jana, kind of, I, I, I have leaned towards this is a part of me that's just trying to protect me because then I just feel really, I'm just a big room and I love all the selves of me in that room. And that just feels really good for me. So yeah, it was an interesting modeling. I'm not sure. Yeah. I'm not sure if it would be helpful for everyone, but it was certainly interesting to separate out kind of the voice, which is part X and the shadow, which was action. I thought that was really interesting. Bill, what, what did you think about that? It seems like there's a yin and yang here, right? Like, you, you put down their quote, if you could banish part X, there'd be no further progress. So on, on one hand, this voice tells us that we're not going to amount to anything, that no one's going to like us, we'll never get anywhere. And when that limits us, it is acting in some way that is detrimental to our well-being. But that voice is also responsible for why we try harder and why we reach further, and why we do more, and why we read another book, and why we uh, go help this person, or why we go, like, it, it also explains why we do all the things that are progressive in terms of bringing us progress in our life. And so I think sitting with the yin and yang of that, and realizing that the voice itself is neither good nor bad, and that on some level, it is necessary, and we would, we would, uh, lose out if the voice wasn't there at all. And so now the problem becomes, how do we use the voice to motivate us rather than allowing it to deter us from doing something? Absolutely. And, you know, you mentioned the shadow. I, I actually do feel like these processes are separate from the shadow. And I think I've always kind of framed it that way, but I've, I've framed more of this part X as our as our neuroprocessing that has been laid down, given, you know, the gift of, of evolution that um, helps us survive, but also doesn't necessarily help us get along with people. I think we are wired more for survival than we are like fulfilling long-term relationship, frankly. I think we have to fight our biological processes a lot. So, so, you, would have, so you would file that under like risk management, evolutionary thinking of like, yeah, and like the that. defense the defense okay. mechanism, maybe the ego, like, you know, it's, yeah. mm -hmm. it's a separate thing. It's the thing that comes up that tries to, you know, say, slow down, yeah, be, it's careful. Thing be careful, be careful. So maybe just stay here. Don't yeah. Isolate, right. Do those things that are going to keep you safe, even though mm -hmm. long-term we're seeing like, it's not good for mm -hmm. your body. It's not good for your relationships. It's not good for your psyche. Um, so there, there does seem to be that, that something in us that's fighting. But I have seen the shadow as something separate. And shadow is that thing because our egoic thinking systems really try to divide things into good, bad, do that this way. And we're definitely raised by people who are trying to teach us this is the good way, this is the bad way, right? Um, 
it's all those things that we filed in the bad box that we don't want to have anything to do with. You know, we don't want to identify with it at all. Um, you know, sometimes it's the thing that actually does show up in our life. Sometimes it's the thing that we just, we, we are hellbent on not having it show up in our life, right? I just put all that kind of in the shadow box. Any piece that I, it's, it's a denied part of humanity that I don't want to be. I don't want to see, and I certainly don't want anyone else pointing it out. What did you think about when in session, um, I'll be honest, I don't do this very often and maybe I should, but how did you, what did you think about him in session kind of modeling having Jonah talk to his shadow? So um, they're, they're talking now about shadow work, the part, like you say, the part of themselves that they're ashamed of, they don't want anyone to see. And so first he's having Jonah identify his shadow and then right there in the session, he's having him talk to his shadow. How do you feel about how you've been treated? And Jonah has like a picture of like, my shadow is my 14 year old chubby acne self. And, you know, how have I treated you? And the shadow would talk back and say, I feel terrible that you've been so ashamed of me and that you try to hide me and you don't share me with anyone. And I feel really rejected, right? And so they were going through this, like I'll send people meditations or you know, homework to do this. I don't often do it in session like this. Mm -hmm. Maybe I, maybe that's something I could do with clients who have seen a couple of times where we would have the trust to do that. Um, but I thought that that was really interesting that he was doing it in session. Um, yeah. What did you think about having that work with the shadow, you know, right there in the session? I, I think it's powerful. I, mm -hmm. I do think it's powerful and I don't always think to do it in a session. Um, I'd like to stay theoretical, and, <laughs> you know, or just yeah, talk specifically about somebody's experience. But I think visualization techniques are actually very, very powerful because, you know, your, our, our nervous systems don't speak English. We, we really do need to, it, it speaks sensation. And one of the things that I noticed that's doing several times that I think is really brilliant is he, he, he guides during you have that the opportunity during that visualization or you know a guided meditation you could do this through guided meditation is just to visualize things because it actually can become a physiological experience and you get it in your body in your nerves and that is sending a signal that will rewire those neural connections in a way that just talking about it never will and so this is one way i mean what he's trying to do in that section is he's trying to, I mean, this is kind of borders on inner child work, right? I mean, there's a little element of that here going on. And there's, there's also this element of just, he's trying to get him to integrate and love that shadow. He's trying to bring empathy to, toward that shadow. Um, and there are different methods. I've seen some other methods that are really, really good at doing this as well that involve, you know, noticing what drives you crazy about other people noticing where in your life you've done that and then picturing all the good things you've gotten from that thing like starting to sh to see that the parts that we've made our happy shiny self and the parts that we've made our shadow actually both have benefit and drawback to being that was, in space that was a really eye-opening when i did that shadow work that you just mm -hmm. said which is what bothers you about other people and for me it's like when they're being inconsistent and illogical and that drives me crazy. And it's because my shadow is like the little 
girl who was really poor. And so if I'm going to be poor and I'm not going to be cool, I'm going to be the smartest one in the class. And if I'm going to be Mormon, I'm going to be the smartest Mormon in that room. And so there's a part of me that it bothers me when people were being kind of logically inconsistent, because I think that's what bothered me most about myself, because yes. I spent so long there kind of being in inconsistent places because I liked how it felt being the smartest one in the room. And I was like, <laughs> it, it, is, it is powerful. It's powerful when we can integrate our shadow and it's lifelong work. There's no one instance of, of battling your shadow and integrating it. But, but I, I do, I do love this methodology of taking people through visualization experiences to feel it in their bodies as you're speaking so that they can access what it is we're even talking about. I think this was my favorite part of the, the program was him talking to his 14 year old self. Cause we're, we're born into this world. Again, obviously as a, a baby, you have no comprehension of what you even are. And as you show up, as you turn one and two, and now you're walking and you're, you're interacting with your, like, you don't even know that there are parts of you that aren't acceptable to the world. And so as you're, as you're a little kid, that's why, that's why most of this stuff goes back to childhood of some, in some way, shape or form, you're a little kid and, and the world around you and the people who love you are notifying you that there's something about you that's not allowed to be. And, um, and so most of our mechanisms, again, we, we show up now and now it's 2023 and I'm 44 years old and my wife says something and means nothing by it. And now I'm pissed and now we're having an argument and I wish she would talk to me different because something happened when I was 10 years old that I didn't feel like I was talked to right. Right. And, uh, so we, we continue to treat the modern moment based on something that's completely different than the modern moment that happened in the past. Thomas McConkie, uh, we were having a conversation along these lines, and he said, when you come to these moments, you've got this bowl, this invisible figurative bowl that's sitting in front of you and the, the liquid in it is just kind of sloshing around, but it's all the past experience. And you show up to this moment and, and right here, right now, and you've got your bowl with you and you know how this moment went the hundred thousand times before. So you respond to it that way. And he said, what you got to do is you just got to dump the bowl out. Like this is a new moment right here. And so as I see him looking at his 14 year old self, And he just sees that 14-year-old, again, not now, because he's done the therapy and he's made some connection and integration with that. But prior to that, he saw that 14-year-old self as broken and not worthy of love and not, um, not acceptable, not even to the closest people he loved, like his mom. And, and I think anytime you can connect a human being, you guys would say a client or a patient or whatnot, but I, anytime you can connect a human being to they were always acceptable. It really said something about the rest of us. Generally speaking, there are some folks who just want to do harm in the world. But it, but for those who aren't doing harm and what they were doing wasn't acceptable, it really did say something about the other, not them. 
And I think helping people process that leads to these light bulb moments where they can now get picked up and set down on a different path. That was really good. I just want to sit back and just enjoy that. That was good. Yeah, I, I feel that also like you, Bill, I, I feel those moments in my own marriage where we have patterns based on old hurts. And so you're trying to come back to the, the moment I'm doing this in my own marriage right now where we're trying to, we've recognized some patterns and we're trying to show up differently intentionally. And um, it's hard, hard work, but I do love, I do love that he, I don't know if it's my favorite part, but I do love that he put up a picture of his 14 year old self. I thought that that took some courage. I, I would do it, but I would be scared to, like I would be embarrassed. I would be embarrassed to put up like, here is a picture of me that I most don't want to show the world. And here is what my shadow is. Like that's, I, I can at least, even if I would have done the documentary differently or whatever, I can at least appreciate, really appreciate that vulnerability. That, that's not easy. That's not easy. Yeah. I mean, that, that's one of the most powerful things I think in the entire film is seeing the vulnerability um, and, and, between both of them, you know, right. um, individually and with each other, there's a lot of vulnerability and vulnerability heals. Mm -hmm. It absolutely does. Vulnerability is the thing that, that makes the space for a traumatized body to heal. And for those of you who have seen it, um, so he's going along, uh, Jonah is kind of resisting any kind of invitation to to vulnerability. He doesn't talk about his brother. He doesn't want to go into anything personal, right? He's trying to do this project without showing his cards, which is what we all do, right? How can I get involved, get on the edge of this, but not show my cards? And uh, eventually he's like, this movie is crap. There's no connect. There's no emotion to it. It's just, it's not going well. And it's because I'm, I'm not showing my cards here. And so that's when they have a shift and they stop and they they kind of you know show what's actually going on in the movie and that they're wearing wigs and all these things um in order to say okay we actually can't talk about vulnerability without being vulnerable it just doesn't work yep and that's really what this inner shadow work is i mean i get a lot of questions about shadow work because it's kind of nebulous it's a hard concept to get our brains around right to understand that there are things about us that we're denying like it's it's hard to access um but um man i lost my train of thought on that but it's <laughs> i i do love um that they they brought that realness to it they brought the picture to it they bring they bring it down to earth where someone can actually access what it is we're even talking about right it's a shadow the shadow often we can see how it shows up in our relationships, but we can also, I mean, shadow work, it really is the action of becoming vulnerable to yourself. Because what we notice is that we wall off the shadow because precisely because it's painful to see it. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for, for me, I, I, when I first started kind of tasting into what shadow work was, someone took me through a different kind of a technique of just noticing what bothered me. And I noticed that I was really bothered by needy people in my life. Mm -hmm. And I'm not talking the obviously like, you know, I, 
I'm really down on my luck and I, and I need some help. Not that kind, but the people who I felt were chronically needy in their life were victim mentality. And I, as, as I looked back, I know exactly where that cropped up. You know, I was raised in a family that was, that really valued independence. Like mm-hmm. independence was the thing and self-reliance. Mm-hmm. And when I would show up as needy, it was probably triggering my parents' shadows mm-hmm. and they had to stomp it out of me. So I learned very early on that needing something was not good. It was not responded to well. And so mm-hmm. it's that part of you that you grow up going, I'm not, I'm never going to be needy again. And that I just see it around in other people and it makes me uncomfortable because not because I don't like them, but because I am afraid for them on some level. Like, don't do that. That is going to lead to bad things, right? But it's all mixed up in all of this. Like, my fierce independence has not helped me heal. Mm-hmm. It, it, it has not helped me heal. It's actually a trauma response. Mm-hmm. I don't yeah. need anybody. And, parent, and parenting kind of brings out, will inevitably bring all that out. Yes. Right? Parenting... Uh, especially when you're kind of the default parent will, will bring out your shadows. And when I first became a mother, you know, whatever was social media, which was probably just Facebook at the time was really just, we were all as mothers taking really cute pictures of our children and talking about how blessed and great it was to be a mom. And that was it. And, um, and it was because we were all too ashamed to admit to ourselves that we were like our mom or we yelled and lost our shit sometimes and whatever. And then I love, you know, some of the moms on social media who have millions of followers because they would just take out their phone and they would just say, I just yelled at my kids and I feel really guilty. Like, because guess what? I do too, you know? Mm -hmm. So I do feel like it's, we're starting to try to come to an understanding of it. Um, I feel like the conversation is much better now, even than 10 years ago um, on talking about this kind of thing. Absolutely. All right. So the next one, I don't really have much to say on this one, but one of his tools was a string of pearls, which is failure or success. You're just going to keep going. I am the person that puts the next pearl on the string. So you think of your mom's or grandma's pearl necklace. Imagine each pearl on a necklace is a single action. And on each pearl, there's going to be a little smudge because it's not going to ever be perfect. But no matter what, you're always moving forward and you are the one that gets to put the next pearl on the string. Which, um, yeah, I don't have a lot to say about this. just seems like you're trying to give some level of control to someone who's really depressed that, it's not going to be perfect, but you can at least choose kind of the next action that you do. Yeah. Right. And if you make that like tangible, like a pearl, right, then you can see because, you know, like he says, life takes work. Even if we're depressed and pulling away from life and staying in bed and not doing much, that is a pearl. And if we can see what it is that we're doing and we don't put value on it, I think that's what's powerful about what he's saying. Each pearl is the same size and it's worth exactly the same as another one. And it's just your next, next action. I think it does give someone the, the visual that everything we're doing is a choice and we get to decide what that next thing is. The other, the other thing that struck me that he said here 
he said, true confidence is living in uncertainty and still moving forward. And actually, I just was struck because that's often the, the um, definition I use of faith these days, right? It's living in uncertainty and still moving forward, it's like determining what is my next right step. And I'm going to try it, whether it's, yeah. it's great or it's it's really the approach that Bill and I use for this podcast, which is, hey, before you jump to the next, you know, cult, because your brain is primed for it, before you jump into the political left or, you know, I, I was laughing because I was I was watching something on TikTok because I joined TikTok this week for anyone who wants to see me on TikTok because I'm laid out with my knee surgery. And someone was talking about how, how crazy it was that Joseph put a rock in a hat and then, you know, just a minute later, you know, and then they were talking about leaving into the church. And then they said, and then I looked at the microwave and it said 1111. So that means that the universe, you know, is telling me I'm on the right path. And I'm like, mm -hmm. before we do that jump to the next thing that you're certain of, can we just sit with the uncertainty and try to build a spiritual good life around the uncertainty? And I think that that's what Bill and I always are trying to do on this podcast. Yeah. because we just really want to cult so bad. Our brains just really like it. <laughs> well, and I also like that he keeps it real and expectations real around that there's a turd in every pearl, right? He, he mentions there's this dark spot that's a turd in every pearl. And we do tend toward this all or nothing thinking and it's got to be, you know, we, we tend to be idealistic at times and, you know, I've got to know exactly the right thing. But having the the idea that whatever step we take is going to have upside and downside that's been really really powerful to me in my journey forward um to take the pressure off of perfection mm. to know that and i and i liked how jonah turned it around and said well in every turd there's a there, there's a pearl yeah in it too, that's the, that's right? the pessimist point of view that it's all turds but yes. there's a little bit of good in each turd <laughs> right Right. There's yeah. a, you can build a pearl around a turd or you can see the turd in the pearl. And, you know, it's that same thing. Of, we're all fighting over whether the optimists and pessimists are fighting over whether the glass is half full or half empty. But it, the truth is, it's been both all along. And I think that that's helpful to learn in life. Well, religion has that tool, right? Because religion will say this is part of God's plan. And it actually is a helpful tool for people because it is a shortcut to say what good can come out of this scenario. 100%. And if you're in a religion, you have that tool primed for you. So I do think that, you know, as Bill and I are trying to always pull these tools out of the religious constructs that they come mm -hmm. from, mm -hmm. it's taking that tool of, you know, you can choose the next action. There's something good that can come out of it, but it doesn't mean that it's because you're God's special child that he loves extra special much. <laughs> that doesn't have to be the vehicle for that idea. Yeah, 100%. And I liked what Jonah said too. Like it seemed like he was pointing to this idea that look, bad stuff's going to happen, but try to find how that's led to something good in your life. And for me, another idea along this line of the the string of pearls is the entire conversation in this, in this presentation was forward looking, but I also think it's helpful to look back and see all the choices, all the strings of pearls and turds behind you. And realizing that it was a combination of all of it that led to here. And so I can look back and go like, oh, man, I made that horrible mistake. I wish I could do that differently. And then I go, maybe I don't wish I would do it differently because maybe I'm okay with who I am here. Maybe I like the progress that's happened. And so maybe 
maybe I need to be okay with all the turds behind me. Absolutely. We're meaning making people and it's important to find the meaning. And that, that's what they're pointing to here. Like there's meaning in everything. Don't be, don't be afraid, you know, get some confidence, get some courage, make a step forward, reassess because you're just building another pearl and there will be another one behind that. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. I'm very proud of the turd that I was able to get rid of this week, but that was a very important string on the pearl of my life. I really needed that. I actually some, needed some, that. some turds are more meaningful than others, but that was a really meaningful <laughs> turd. I worked really hard. Oh, okay. I, I'm sorry. So terrible. Bring this down. Okay. Next one. Let's talk about. Um, the snapshot, so the realm of illusion. So we are subconsciously kind of looking for this perfect experience. So it's gonna be a snapshot because it doesn't really exist. It doesn't have any depth. It's like the per if I get the perfect wife and the perfect house and the perfect amount of money, make the perfect tweet, say the perfect thing in this conversation, everything is gonna be fine. And it's an illusion that's created kind of by your, your part X that I'll be happy when I get to the snapshot and really talking about how it's an illusion. So thoughts about that? Yeah, I think it's a really, it's a great tool. It's an important thing to note in life, all of the ways that we, we all tend to do this. I'll be happy when, I mean, it's just kind of a syndrome that seems to be part of being human. I'll be happy when this happens. I'll be happy when that happens. And all the happiness studies, if you look at the um, the research of Tal Ben-Shahar or Sean Acor at Harvard and other people who are doing this kind of work, it just backs this up. You know, it's not the destination and getting the things that we want that brings fulfillment in life. We just know that. But yet all of us seem to live in that illusion from time to time, even when we know, even when we know better. <laughs> I still have these visions of the future and go, oh, I just know it'll be better once I get that. And it doesn't matter how how long you've lived and how much you recognize that that never really works. <laughs> your brain tells you that you're still going to say it about the future, even though all of the life experience you have says that that's an illusion. Totally. But this time, Bill, this, this time, time it's going to work. <laughs> and we all do it. it yeah. Uh -huh. It's almost like we're like the pro again, you guys pointed out earlier, the programming is completely to perpetuate the species and it's not for individual contentment or fulfillment. So the, the idea of the carrot on the stick always in front of you that you're always chasing down survival, which, which by the way, all three of those things, pain, uncertainty, constant work that those are, those have been there for hundreds of thousands of years, maybe millions and maybe even billions of years. Um, we, we have to fool ourselves into thinking, I'm going to get there. I'm going to get there. I'm going to get there because that's what keeps us moving. If sitting in my front room and playing Madden is, is contentment and it isn't, if it's contentment, then I stop doing anything else. Like we all just sit on the couch and, you know, check out Netflix and we're all doing enough of that anyway. Mm -hmm. We got to have the illusion of if I just do something more, it will be perfect. And I do like how he says that it's driven by part X. So it is driven by that insecure voice, right? I want that, I want that, whatever it is, whatever my ego is wanting out of this situation, because then I'll know that I'm really worthy, or then I'll know that I can really 
calm down and, and be happy in my life because I'm enough, right? So it is driven by that voice that is always saying it's impossible and you're not enough and, um, you know, imposter syndrome and that kind of thing. So mm. it is driven by that voice. Okay, next one. Let's do, so let's do the maze. And I think you mm -hmm. have a, a clip or a, image of this bill yeah visual so oh, the yeah. maze um involves other people and this is where you have a choice in your life because you will inevitably at some point in your life get screwed over like it it will be injustice mm -hmm. there will not be justice that person will not say sorry they will not get caught they will not know what they did wrong it is going to be pure injustice it's going to happen multiple times in your life and so your choice is to go into the maze and get trapped in the past, which is I'll move on when they say sorry. I'll let this go when they blah, blah, blah. Or to go with a forward motion and choose active love where, and he does this exercise where you are taking in love. It's, it's kind of like a loving kindness meditation is what he's doing with them in session where you are doing a visualization, you're taking in love, um, and then you're sending love to people that you already love. And then even sending love to people who in your life are hard to love and just saying, I, I, I wish you love. I wish you the best. I'm moving forward. And so he kind of does this, you know, I've, I've done many of these meditations before, but they've always been kind of loving kindness meditations is what they is what they are in Buddhism. But he talks about it in session as Let's get you out of this maze where we're trapped and held captive by other people's choices. And let's move forward and just offer that person love and, and go on with your life. Um, I, I, I think this is a really um, interesting framing and a few of the ways that I've heard this talked about before, you know, the, the maze, calling it the maze is new to me, but um, a lot of scapegoating comes from this. Um, you know, if we are continually blaming someone else for our difficulties in life, it, we, we tend to scapegoat. And I often say that um, marriage can be one giant exercise in scapegoating because the other person is triggering our shadow all over the place. And um, not only is loving kindness a way out of this, but long term shadow work is also a way out of this you know, starting to understand what is being triggered in us, because sometimes it's truly injustice and unfair and there are power dynamics and there's nothing you can do. Other times it's just, it's your spouse saying something that triggering your shadow. And we don't think we can move on until they see us differently because we are trying to control people not seeing our shadow. So as long as we are hanging on to somebody else, we're giving all of our power away, right? And, and so I do like that he has this way of moving through it. The one caveat I would say, and he did say, he said it really quickly. So if you're not listening for it, I don't know, you may miss it. But he says, this is not forgiveness. This, this process is not forgiveness. And I think there are a few important distinctions to that, because I don't think he's saying, just be okay with how the other people have hurt you in your life. If it's not fair, you know, just be okay. And it's, this is not toxic positivity. Um, but I, I think it is important to get ourselves out of a state where we feel out of control. Yeah. It's not toxic. It's not toxic positivity. And it's also not 
the religious shame game of like, you need to forgive them or you're not being Christ-like, right? Which is kind of the same game, but in a different package. It's, it's, I'm not getting caught in the maze of, of your actions. Correct. And that, but that's a, that's a danger I see in the way it's presented here is that people could misinterpret what he's saying oh, I see. for toxic positivity or, right. or pressure to forgive. Right. No, I see what you're saying. The thing that like hit me because I know that it's me and it was like, Ooh, when he said that I was like, shit, that's me. <laughs> it was, do you want to be right? Or do you want to create something? And there's a couple relationships that I have where I want to be right, because I am right. I'm right. <laughs> I get it. Oh my gosh, Britt, and you and I have this in common. Every time we have these conversations, I'm like, oh. That, I was like, okay, yeah, I want to create something. But with this person, I want them to know that I was right, because I was. Yes. So, you know, I still have some work to do, but that one was like, that was my moment where I was like, oh, shit, that's me. Other people can do things and we get stuck. And I think the goal here is to sense that no one really has power for us to be stuck. And you guys have pointed to it. Like we're not, we're not necessarily doing the things with it that the rest of the world's calling you to do. It's just, just move forward. All right, last couple of things here. So we have the grateful flow, which I've, I've had I've had guided meditations that are very similar to this, but it was interesting to see him do this in, in session. So grateful flow is what he calls, you know, getting out of the clouds in order to see the sun. And so you start by saying the things that you're actually really grateful for. And then instead of uh, continuing to name things where you're just thinking about things, you just actually hone in on the feeling of being grateful. So for me, how I tap into this, like I, I have a little shortcut and a lot of people, I think if you've done gratitude meditations, you have maybe a little shortcut to tap into really what he calls the grateful flow, which is just a state of gratitude rather than just naming the things that you have. Right. And so for me, it's, it's always like, oh my gosh, how many billions of years of evolution had to happen in order for me to exist in this universe? And I'm on this earth and I'm alive right now. And that is my, like, I can tap into my gratitude stance when I have that thought. And so that's how I get into that. But it was interesting that he started with having Jonah say things that he was grateful for, but then he had him stop and just focus on the feeling and just kind of breathe into it. So, because it's not listing the things that you have, it's a state of being able to move through life with gratitude. Off there. And it's creating, right? That's another way of him creating that physiological experience of being in something and and letting your body know it's calming your nervous system. It's, it's letting your body know that there's a way forward and um, that it, it can learn to get through threats and, and things like that. I think it's very, very useful. I, I've used that um, example of the sun in the clouds. Um, you know, sometimes I'm talking about a different thing. I'm talking about that, just that, that good core of people that seems to be connected to love and, 
you know, when people have a hard time uh, with their self-concept or thinking that they're not worth much, this can be um, another thing that they can do to access their own worth. Yeah, the visualization that comes for me, a nerd, is when Bilbo is in the dark forest and they're lost and they're all confused and he climbs up to the trees and takes a breath with the sunshine. And it's kind of that feeling mm-hmm. of kind of getting out of of the dark forest in, in that exists in your own mind. Yeah, which is another thing that you guys can tie back to the religious experience, right? This is, I think, the, the idea behind what, what was cropping up in a lot of religious tradition is trying to find that way to have that moment for people to have that. Yeah, it's the best of what religion can do is, is it had it always had dietary guidelines and then it had people and community and then it had opportunities for awe and transcendence and gratitude and rituals. And so it was kind of our first attempt at trying, right? Trying well, the is. science of happiness. Well, even the way you just said that, it was the dietary is the body, the connection yeah, uh-huh. to the community is the people, yeah. right? It's it's uh-huh. a little pyramid of life. It's the pyramid. It's yeah. the pyramid. It, it, tried. It, it tried. It tries. It tries. It really does. It, tries. <laughs> it, it does. The, the difference, again, not to get off track, but the difference was that it wanted control. It wanted to be the one that dictated how things went. It didn't allow it to be an inner journey. And so you've got some hint of truth there, mm-hmm. but it's connected to yes. something deeply unhealthy. Absolutely. Well, I think it's the life cycle. I, I tend to think most of the founders, mostly, at the beginning, wanted it, it, it was that good stuff that they were seeing and they were having insight into that. But it quickly devolved yeah. either in their life and certainly got pounded in with people after them that it turned to the control. It turns that way really quickly, sadly. I uh, I just want to add that watching, I've watched this twice now, Stutz, and I just really really appreciated the mental exercises combined with the drawings. It it reminds me of, uh, which I think is a beautiful YouTube channel called After School, where they take these really profound talks given by people, Alan Watts, for instance, Mm -hmm. Renee Brown, and they assign artwork. So you're listening to the voice talking about these really deep inner work, second half of life concepts, and somebody's drawing these pictures up on the board and you can, it just, it hits you a different way. And watching Jonah do these mental exercises while these visionary things are happening. There's one moment where Phil says he's tired and Jonah tells him to go lay down. So he goes in the bed and he lays down and suddenly there's waves and, and now he's connecting with his deceased brother, but he also mentions that maybe he's even seeing Jonah's deceased brother. So they have this shared experience, right? And there's just something about the way they did it that I was able to connect with in a way that was really helpful. Absolutely. It was one of the things that I really noticed overall with this. Um, I was so struck by, um, by the solidity of his tools. Right. I mean, I, I'm always out there talking about, um, you know, human ritual being so important to be able to take nebulous ideas, right. And bring it down to the, the concrete and, you know, the more I work with people, I'm, I'm talking about a lot of this nebulous stuff. I'm touching on a lot of the same stuff that Stutz touches on with his tools, right? But I'm like, man, I hope by the time I'm 74, I've got a nice system this way to communicate nebulous ideas I in would a beautiful love, way. 
I, if you could, by then, if you could just have like a Jana manual for like, <laughs> where you've like, you know, concretized everything that you've said and all your concepts and all the <sighs> things that you do with clients and all your different approaches and you had some nice diagrams that went with it. I would buy the hell out of that <laughs> thing. <laughs> I know. I, I, I seriously, I thought about it. I'm like, oh, that was so, Wouldn't that be cool? so powerful. It really is. It's so powerful what he's done. Like, I yeah. really am in awe mm -hmm. of that because it is hard. This is, I mean, there's so much to being human, right? It's right. so and hard. We're, we're, we're just trying to give visualization and yes. mouth sounds to inner yes. experiences. Yes. Yeah. Which is so, it falls it, short. It's hard. Yeah, it, falls short. It's ne it never is the experience. Like I could exactly. say the word nihilism. That doesn't right? describe what it was like to feel that way, you know? Right. That only the mariner knows the map is not the sea, right? This oh, that's lovely. That's See, put that in the book. Put all, <laughs> I want all of Jana's quips also in the book. Like, so there'll be the diagrams and then like little quotes, you know, like little quotables. Mm -mm. Put, put all I'll, that I'll in the working, manual. I'll start working on that. That's a great idea. Seriously, be my idea. business manager, Britt. <laughs> all right. So the last one that I have is loss processing. And I have done this with, um, I've done this with Noah Rochetta does this um, guided meditation and he does this one a lot. And so I've done it a few times. Um, he's the one who does secular Buddhism podcast and it's uh it's so the way that Noah does it is that you imagine a stage and you imagine everyone that you love stepping on the stage and disappearing one at a time. You kind of go through this guided meditation and then eventually you step on the stage and, and disappear too. And then you come back to yourself and you come back to your relationships and it's really helping you kind of uh, prepare for loss and give you a tool and kind of break the illusion that everything's going to stay the same forever. Um, and so I saw something similar that Stutz did here, which was he kind of guided Jonah into, you know, what are the things that you're clinging to? Like, who are the people that you're really, really afraid to lose? And you need to pursue these relationships and pursue these projects, but you need to be willing to not have it. You need to be willing to let it go when it's time to let it go and working towards that non-attachment where you can still have goals and you can still have meaningful relationships and projects that you're invested in, but you never go so far as to say, if I lose this thing, uh, I'm, I'm gone. Like everything I have is attached to this thing, project person, whatever. And so it's really kind of preparing for loss, but also prop processing previous loss. And so that was interesting to see in the session. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I love that Jonah just mentioned, this is not about being not attached to things in life, right? It's not about detaching yourself from other things. It's noticing that no one thing in your life is going to ruin all of life, right? If yeah, we, I love that. Mm -hmm. Because I do get a lot of people being thinking about non-attachment and trying to like literally not care about everything in their life, which is ex exactly the opposite of where you want to go. Yeah, that's like that's like apathy. Like mm -hmm. you know, we're not trying to become so apathetic that we have no really connection to life. Like if your that's child right. dies, you should cry. Like, yes, that is the most appropriate response. 
Yes. But you also shouldn't kill yourself too. Right. Because there should, there, there has to be a way to find life outside of even that horrific greed. Exactly. Okay. And then I have, Bill, do you have something? No, no, I, I really like that. So the, the only other one that I saw at Brit yeah. was radical acceptance. I don't know if we, we, touched on that one but he had a big one about radical acceptance and and i bristle a little bit at this although mm. i feel like this is a both and like this is a both and thing i love radical acceptance i think it's it's a highly helpful thing you can you know go for days seeing all the different people who are talking about radical acceptance um and i like that he says you know this is this is we've got to get to something deeper than just like the well, it's okay. It'll be better tomorrow, you know, brush it off. But it it's, I think it's actually tied to the loss processing in a way. Like, I think those two kind of go together in, in some way, but he's, he's also, and he's also, this kind of could tie into his Pearl idea, but he, um, he takes people through, um, a, a step-by-step -step thing where they're not allowed to tell themselves anything negative. And this is why I bristle at this, because I'm always like, man, we live in such a toxic positivity place. Like, don't tell people not to see the negative, right? But that's not what he's saying. And he actually does say that out loud. He says, um, it's not that there's not negativity. But the piece that's helpful is you're not allowed to say anything negative to yourself for a minute. And, and one of the things that's helpful about that is we've got to short circuit this judgmental part of our brain that's all, you know, that's part of probably part of part X that's always telling us that we're not enough and we're not good enough and it's never going to be enough. And we, we fall into anxiety spirals where anxiety is a lying liar who lies, right? Um, so it's, it's an active finding a positive in every situation. Um, and he says in this space, faith, having faith that there is something that is valuable in every experience. Yeah. I talked about this concept this summer when my daughter Florence fell out of the window. Mm. And I talked about it because I had noticed for the first time that um, I felt like I was able to grieve a little bit easier than my husband. And I think the reason was I had had to do such deep work with radical accept acceptance around just the nature of the universe and what I am and what's going on here with life. And some of that had seeped deep enough into my bones that when she fell, I could grieve and I'm still going to grieve, you know, when she's paralyzed in the hospital. But I didn't have that thought that um, things should have should be different. This shouldn't happen to four-year-olds. I should have done X to prevent this. And my husband did have some of those thoughts of um, maybe this is my fault and I, you know, that kind of thing. And so I do think I, it was the first time where I saw the fruits of radical acceptance, like you're talking about in the grief process, where you're able to just feel the grief and process it. But I didn't have any resistance to it because I just immediately accepted my daughter fell out of the window and we're in the hospital for, and whatever is going to happen there, if she dies or if she, whatever is going to happen from that, I deeply accept what's happening here. And that it didn't, um, it didn't stop the grief. I still grieved, mm -hmm. but it, I was able to go through that grieving process just a lot faster and a lot cleaner. It was like clean pain versus dirty pain. And, um, 
And I think it was because I had done work in the previous years with, with radical acceptance of, you know, the nature of suffering in the universe and all of that. It's such a beautiful example of that. One of the things that he says here that I love is my, one of my favorite parts of the section was, he says, don't judge all of reality by the experience of the last five minutes. When we are, when we are, um, experiencing something really painful and difficult, um, it is in our nature to focus in on the problem. That that's what our brain is trying again. It's survival. You know, our brain focuses in on the, the thing that's hard. And um, it I I now hear the words of one of my mentors, another one of my mentors is Mark Nepo. He's a poet and he he will say, just you know, I am sad. You you see the thing. I am sad, but not all of life is sad. You know, I am angry, but not all of life is filled with anger. Um, I'm feeling injustice, but not all of existence is unjust. And there is something to that of recognizing that this one thing we can tend to get focused in on. And it's it's a, it's also a Zen practice that I've learned from some different practitioners. Of, yeah, I've done of meditations. Out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've done meditations, even doing that in your own body yep. of like, I'm feeling angry. Well, is my pinky toe angry? Well, no. Well, then I'm not all angry. You know what I mean? And so you can like, I've literally like spent an hour like being in my pinky toe because my pinky toe is not angry. Yes. (laughs) And it's just like a little trick of what you're saying Mm -hmm. of not getting wrapped into the experience of what I'm feeling right now. Right. Because it's so easy to catastrophize, right? That's where our brain goes. It's again, it's trying to anticipate every awful thing and you know, try trying to keep it, yourself safe, but um, yeah, focusing out, recognizing that it's not all that way, um, can really help us get into radical acceptance of this one thing. All right, last thoughts, Bill. Yeah, three things stuck out that mm. I don't think we mentioned, and, okay. and really quick. The first one, it goes back to when he was looking at his. 14 year old self, there was the phrase, if you don't pay it. And, and Phil said this, Phil Stutz said this to Jonah, if you don't pay your shadow, uh, your shadow self attention, it will sabotage you. Mm-hmm. And he said, he said, you don't have to interact with your shadow self, good or bad. You just have to pay attention to it. You have to give it acknowledgement. And that seemed to me that what he seemed to be saying was when you're doing that, you're very present. You're very aware of your shadow self, so it has less chance to to overcome the healthy way in which you want to deal with a moment. So um, it's not about necessarily seeing it as good or bad, talking to it as good or bad. Rather, the just the acknowledgement um, allows you to be present in your life and to make like the wisest choice in this moment because you now see the ego on your shoulder. And it's not, it's not the one speaking for you. You're, you're just acknowledging it. And so now you get to make a different choice. Um, get rebalanced, not from others, but from active love. Sit with all the love of the universe. And then there was one that just made me chuckle. But man, is it true? And he said it twice, two or three times. He said, schmuck, move forward no matter how frightened you are. Um, like we all feel negative things about ourselves, and we're all scared about what's going to happen. But moving forward is, it really is a big part of, of feeling productive, feeling contentment, feeling good, 
in this moment, even if 10 seconds ago, that moment really sucked. Mm, love all those. All right. I'm going to close with what I thought was, this was, I, I was just kind of taking notes as I was writing this, you know, because I'm preparing for a podcast. So I'm listening, but I'm taking notes and thinking about how I want to structure this episode. And then there was one moment where like, it really hit me and I, and I, and I cried and I put down my notes and I just kind of felt it for a second. And it was at the end, it was at the end of the movie, just seeing two men say, Hey, I love you, man. Like it was, it, I think it was even a little bit more powerful seeing men do it because it's a little bit easier just in our society for me to say, Janet, I love you than to say, Bill, I love you, which is terrible for the men in our lives but just to see two men saying hey on this list of like things that i'm really afraid to lose i'm really afraid to lose you and they said it out loud and that's when i put down my notebook and i just had this like huge feeling of like my god how many people are in my life that have never told them that they're on that list for me yeah and that was right. it for me yeah, I was so struck by that moment as well. And just the rapport between them. I mean, for nothing for nothing else, it's a beautiful thing to watch their relationship. That because they practice that vulnerability and because they brazz each other, they I mean, they use humor a lot. Both of them are funny and I just find humor to be huge in healing. Um and it was, it was, it was breathtaking to see their relationship. It was beautiful. All right. So as we wrap up, I think I'm just going to do that. You know what, Jana, if we, if you got hit by a bus tomorrow and I lost your voice in the world, it really would be irreplaceable. And not because you're a one and you have to write that manual because I know the one part of you wants to write that manual because you put a lot of worth in the things that you do. Even without the manual and the work that you do in your world, just you and your voice, uh, there'd be no one else to replace it. And Bill, I just don't tell you enough. If you got hit by a bus tomorrow, Every Tuesday, I mean, I'd be sad for a long time. And then even after grieving you and missing you, every Tuesday at one o'clock till the day that I die, I would just say there'd be nothing more than I want to do than talk to Bill right now. Mm. Love you guys. All right. Have a great day. <laughs> I'm right. This has been another Almost Awakened episode. Check us out at almostawakened.org where you can check out past episodes, make a donation to keep this podcast running, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources shared in today's episode. For coaching opportunities or extra support, visit nonsensespirituality.com to meet with certified spiritual director Brittany Hartman.